0: Chapter six Part two of Principia Ethica This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, recording by Fredrik Carlson Principia Ethica by GE Moore. One hundred and sixteen. 3 connected with the distinction just made between object in the sense of qualities actually before the mind and object in the sense of the whole thing which possesses the qualities actually before the mind is another distinction of the utmost importance for a correct analysis of the constituents necessary to a valuable whole it is commonly and rightly thought that to see beauty in a thing which has no beauty is in some way inferior to seeing beauty in that which really has it but under this single description of seeing beauty in that which has no beauty two very different facts and facts of very different value may be included we may mean either the attribution to an object of really beautiful qualities which it does not possess or the feeling towards qualities which the object does possess, but which are in reality not beautiful, an emotion which is appropriate only to qualities really beautiful. Both these facts are a very frequent occurrence, and in most instances of emotion both no doubt occur together, but they are obviously quite distinct, and the distinction is of the utmost importance for a correct estimate of values. The former may be called an error of judgment, and the latter an error of taste. But it is important to observe that the error of taste commonly involves a false judgment of value, whereas the error of judgment is merely a false judgment of fact. Now the case which I have called an error of taste, namely, where the actual qualities we admire, whether possessed by the object or not, are ugly, can in any case have no value except such as may belong to the emotion by itself, and in most, if not in all cases, it is a considerable positive evil. In this sense, then, it is undoubtedly right to think that seeing beauty in a thing which has no beauty is inferior in value to seeing beauty where beauty really is. But the other case is much more difficult, In this case there is present all that I have hitherto mentioned as necessary to constitute a great positive good. There is a cognition of qualities really beautiful, together with an appropriate emotion towards these qualities. There can, therefore, be no doubt that we have here a great positive good. But there is present also something else, namely a belief that these beautiful qualities exist, and that they exist in a certain relation to other things namely, to some properties of the object to which we attribute these qualities, and further the object of this belief is false. And we may ask, with regard to the whole thus constituted, whether the presence of the belief and the fact that what is believed is false make any difference to its value? We thus get three different cases of which it is very important to determine the relative values. Where both the cognition of beautiful qualities and the appropriate emotion are present, we may also have either, one, a belief in the existence of these qualities, of which the object, that is, that they exist, is true. Or, two, a mere cognition, without belief, when it is, a, true, b, false, that the object of the cognition, that is, the beautiful qualities, exists or 3 a belief in the existence of the beautiful qualities when they do not exist. The importance of these cases arises from the fact that the second defines the pleasures of imagination, including a great part of the appreciation of those works of art which are representative, whereas the first contrasts with these the appreciation of what is beautiful in nature and the human affections. The third, on the other hand, is contrasted with both, in that it is chiefly exemplified in what is called misdirected affection, and it is possible also that the love of God, in the case of a believer, should fall under this head. 117. Now all these three cases, as I have said, have something in common, namely, that in them all we have a cognition of really beautiful qualities together with an appropriate emotion towards those qualities. I think, therefore, it cannot be doubted, nor is it commonly doubted, that all three include great positive goods. They are all things of which we feel convinced that they are worth having for their own sakes. And I think that the value of the second, in either of its two subdivisions, is precisely the same as the value of the element common to all three. In other words, in the case of purely imaginative appreciations, we have merely the cognition of really beautiful qualities together with the appropriate emotion. And the question whether the object cognized exists or not seems here, where there is no belief either in its existence or in its non-existence, to make absolutely no difference to the value of the total state. But it seems to me that the two other cases do differ in intrinsic value, both from the one and from one another, even though the object cognized and the appropriate emotion should be identical in all three cases. I think that the additional presence of a belief in the reality of the object makes the total state much better if the belief is true, and worse if the belief is false. In short, where there is belief, In the sense in which we do believe in the existence of nature and horses and do not believe in the existence of an ideal landscape and unicorns the truth of what is believed does make a great difference to the value of the organic whole if this be the case we shall have vindicated the belief that knowledge in the ordinary sense as distinguished on the one hand from belief in what is false and on the other from the mere awareness of what is true does contribute towards intrinsic value, that, at least in some cases, its presence as a part makes a whole more valuable than it could have been without. Now I think there can be no doubt that we do judge that there is a difference of value such as I have indicated between the three cases in question. We do think that the emotional contemplation of a natural scene, supposing its qualities equally beautiful, is in some way a better state of things than that of a painted landscape. We think that the world would be improved if we could substitute for the best works of representative art real objects equally beautiful and similarly we regard a misdirected affection or admiration even where the error involved is a mere error of judgment and not an error of taste as in some way unfortunate and further those at least who have a strong respect for truth are inclined to think that a merely poetical contemplation of the kingdom of heaven would be superior to that of the religious believer if if it were the case that the kingdom of heaven does not and will not really exist Most persons, on a sober, reflective judgment, would feel some hesitation even in preferring the felicity of a madman, convinced that the world was ideal, to the condition either of a poet imagining an ideal world, or of themselves enjoying and appreciating the lesser goods which do and will exist but in order to assure ourselves that these judgments are really judgments of intrinsic value upon the question before us and to satisfy ourselves that they are correct it is necessary clearly to distinguish our question from two others which have a very important bearing upon our total judgment of the cases in question 118 in the first place a it is plain that where we believe The question whether we believe is true or false will generally have a most important bearing upon the value of our belief as a means. Where we believe, we are apt to act upon our belief in a way in which we do not act upon our cognition of the events in a novel. The truth of what we believe is, therefore, very important as preventing the pains of disappointment and still more serious consequences and it might be thought that a misdirected attachment was unfortunate solely for this reason that it leads us to count upon results which the real nature of its object is not of a kind to ensure so too the love of god where as usual it includes the belief that he will annex to certain actions consequences either in his life or the next which the course of nature gives no reason to expect, may lead the believer to perform actions of which the actual consequences, supposing no such God to exist, may be much worse than he might otherwise have effected. And it might be thought that this was the sole reason, as it is a sufficient one, why we should hesitate to encourage the love of God, in the absence of any proof that he exists and similarly it may be thought that the only reason why beauty in nature should be held superior to an equally beautiful landscape or imagination is that its existence would ensure greater permanence and frequency in our emotional contemplation of that beauty it is indeed certain that the chief importance of most knowledge of the truth of most of the things which we believe does in this world consist in its extrinsic advantages It is immediately valuable, as a means. And secondly, b. It may be the case that the existence of that which we contemplate is itself a great positive good, so that, for this reason alone, the state of things described by saying that the object of our motion really exists would be intrinsically superior to that in which it did not. This reason for superiority is undoubtedly of great importance in the case of human affections, where the object of our admiration is the mental qualities of an admirable person. For that two such admirable persons should exist is greatly better than that there should be only one and it would also discriminate the admiration of an inanimate nature from that of its representations in art in so far as we may allow a small intrinsic value to the existence of a beautiful object apart from any contemplation of it but it is to be noticed that this reason would not account for any difference in value between the cases where the truth was believed and that in which it was merely cognized without either belief or disbelief in other words So far as this reason goes, the difference between the two subdivisions of our second class, that of imaginative contemplation, would be as great as between our first class and the second subdivision of our second. The superiority of the mere cognition of a beautiful object, when that object also happened to exist, over the same cognition when the object did not exist, would, on this account, be as great as that of the knowledge of a beautiful object of the mere imagination of it. 119. These two reasons for discriminating between the value of the three cases we are considering must, I say, be carefully distinguished from that of which I am now questioning the validity if we are to obtain a correct answer concerning this latter. The question I am putting is this. Whether the whole constituted by the fact that there is an emotional contemplation of a beautiful object, which is both believed to be and is real, does not derive some of its value from the fact that the object is real. I am asking whether the value of this whole, as a whole, is not greater than that of those which differ from it, either by the absence of belief, with or without truth, or belief being present, by the mere absence of truth. I am not asking either whether it is not superior to them as a means, which it certainly is, nor whether it may contain a more valuable part, namely the existence of the object in question. My question is solely whether the existence of its object does not constitute an addition to the value of the whole, quite distinct from the addition constituted by the fact that this whole does contain a valuable part. If, now, we put this question, I cannot avoid thinking that it should receive an affirmative answer. We can put it clearly by the method of isolation, and the sole decision must rest with our reflective judgment upon it, as thus clearly put. We can guard against the bias produced by a consideration of value as a means by supposing the case of an illusion as complete and permanent as illusions in this world never can be we can imagine the case of a single person enjoying throughout eternity the contemplation of scenery as beautiful and intercourse with persons as admirable as can be imagined while yet the whole of the objects of this cognition are absolutely unreal i think we should definitely pronounce the existence of a universe which consisted solely of such a person to be greatly inferior in value to one in which the objects in the existence of which he believes did really exist just as he believes them to do and that it would be thus inferior not only because it would lack the goods which consist in the existence of the objects in question but also merely because his belief would be false that it would be inferior for this reason alone follows if we admit what also appears to me certain that the case of a person merely imagining without believing the beautiful objects in question would although these objects really existed be yet inferior to that of the person who also believed in their existence For here all the additional good, which consists in the existence of the objects, is present, and yet there still seems to be a great difference in value between this object and that in which their existence is believed. But I think that my conclusion may perhaps be exhibited in a more convincing light by the following considerations. 1. It does not seem to me that the small degree of value which we may allow to the existence of beautiful inanimate objects is nearly equal in amount to the difference which I feel that there is between the appreciation, accompanied by belief, of such objects, when they really exist, and the purely imaginative appreciation of them, when they do not exist. This inequality is more difficult to verify whether object is an admirable person since a great value must be allowed to his existence. But yet I think it is not paradoxical to maintain that the superiority of reciprocal affection where both objects are worthy and both exist over an unreciprocated affection where both are worthy but one does not exist does not lie solely in the fact that in the former case we have two good things instead of one but also in the fact that each is such as the other believes him to be two it seems to me that the important contribution to value made by true belief may be very plainly seen in the following case Suppose that the worthy object of affection does really exist and is believed to do so but that there enters into the case this error of fact that the qualities loved though exactly like are yet not the same which really do exist this state of things is easily imagined and i think we cannot avoid pronouncing that Although both persons here exist, it is yet no so satisfactory, as where the very person loved and believed to exist is also the one which actually does exist. 120. If all this be so, we have, in this third section, added to our former results, the third result that the true belief in the reality of an object greatly increases the value of many valuable wholes. Just as in sections 1 and 2 it was maintained that aesthetic and affectionate emotions had little or no value apart from the cognition of appropriate objects, and that the cognition of these objects had little or no value apart from the appropriate emotion, so that the whole, in which both were combined, had a value great in excess of the sum of the values of its parts. So, according to this section, if there be added to these holes a true belief in the reality of the object the new whole thus formed has a value greatly in excess of the sum obtained by adding the value of the true belief considered in itself to that of our original wholes. this new case only differs from the former in this that whereas the true belief by itself has quite as little value as either of the two other constituents taking singly Yet they, taken together, seem to form a whole of very great value, whereas this is not the case with the two wholes which might be formed by adding the true belief to either of the others. The importance of the result of this section seems to lie mainly in two of its consequences. 1 that it affords some justification for the immense intrinsic value which seems to be commonly attributed to the mere knowledge of some truths and which was expressly attributed to some kinds of knowledge by Plato and Aristotle perfect knowledge has indeed competed with perfect love for the position of the ideal if the results of this section are correct It appears that knowledge, though having little or no value by itself, is an absolutely essential constituent in the highest goods, and contributes immensely to their value. And it appears that this function may be performed not only by that case of knowledge which we have chiefly considered, namely knowledge of the reality of the beautiful object cognized, but also by knowledge of the numerical identity of this object with which really exists, and by the knowledge that the existence of that object is truly good indeed all knowledge which is directly concerned with the nature of the constituents of a beautiful object would seem capable of adding greatly to the value of the contemplation of that object although by itself such knowledge would have no value at all and two The second important consequence, which follows from this section, is that the presence of true belief may, in spite of a great inferiority in the value of the emotion and the beauty of its objects, constitute with them a whole equal or superior in value to wholes in which the emotion and beauty are superior, but in which a true belief is wanting or a false belief present. In this way we may justify the attribution of equal or superior value to an appreciation of an inferior real object as compared with the appreciation of a greatly superior object which is a mere creature of the imagination. Thus a just appreciation of nature and of real persons may maintain its equality when an equally just appreciation of the products of artistic imagination, in spite of much greater beauty in the latter. And similarly, though God may be admitted to be a more perfect object than any actual human being, the love of God may yet be inferior to human love, if God does not exist. One hundred 4. In order to complete the discussion of this first class of goods, goods which have an essential reference to beautiful objects, it would be necessary to attempt a classification and comparative evaluation of all the different forms of beauty, a task which properly belongs to the study called aesthetics. I do not, however, propose to attempt any part of this task. It must only be understood that I intend to include among the essential constituents of the goods I have been discussing every form and variety of beautiful object If only it be truly beautiful, and, if this be understood, I think it may be seen that the consensus of opinion with regard to what is positively beautiful and what is positively ugly, and even with regard to great differences in degree of beauty, is quite sufficient to allow us a hope that we need not greatly err in our judgments of good and evil. In anything which is thought beautiful by any considerable number of persons there is probably some beautiful quality and differences of opinion seem to be far more often due to exclusive attention on the part of different persons to different qualities in the same object than to the positive error of supposing a quality that is ugly to be really beautiful when an object which something beautiful is denied to be so by others, the truth is usually that it lacks some beautiful quality or is deformed by some ugly one, which engage the exclusive attention of the critics. I may, however, state two general principles closely connected with the results of this chapter, the recognition of which would seem to be of great importance for the investigation of what things are truly beautiful. The first of these is, one, a definition of beauty, of what is meant by saying that a thing is truly beautiful. The naturalistic fallacy has been quite as commonly committed with regard to beauty as with regard to good. Its use has introduced as many errors into aesthetics as into ethics. It has been even more commonly supposed that the beautiful may be defined as that which produces certain effects upon our feelings, and the conclusion which follows from this, namely, that judgments of taste are merely subjective, that precisely the same thing may, according to circumstances, be both beautiful and not beautiful, has very frequently been drawn. The conclusions of this chapter suggest a definition of beauty which may partially explain and entirely remove the difficulties which have led to this error. It appears probable that the beautiful should be defined as that of which the admiring contemplation is good in itself. That is to say, to assert that a thing is beautiful is to assert that the cognition of it is an essential element in one of the intrinsically valuable wholes we have been discussing so that the question whether it is truly beautiful or not depends upon the objective question whether the whole in question is or is not truly good and does not depend upon the question whether it would or would not excite particular feelings in particular persons this definition has the double recommendation that it accounts both for the apparent connection between goodness and beauty and for the no less apparent difference between these two conceptions it appears at first sight to be a strange coincidence that there should be two different objective predicates of value good and beautiful which are nevertheless so related to one another that whatever is beautiful is also good but if our definition be correct the strangeness disappears since it leaves only one unanalysable predicate of value namely good while beautiful though not identical with is to be defined by reference to this being thus at the same time different from and necessarily connected with it in short on this view to say that a thing is beautiful is to say not indeed that it is itself good but that it is a necessary element in something which is to prove that a thing is truly beautiful is to prove that a whole to which it appears a particular relation as a part is truly good And in this way we should explain the immense predominance among objects commonly considered beautiful of material objects, objects of the external senses, since these objects, though themselves having, as has been said, little or no intrinsic value, are yet essential constituents in the largest groups of wholes which have intrinsic value. These holes themselves may be, and are, also beautiful, but the comparative rarity with which we regard them as themselves objects of contemplation seems sufficient to explain the association of beauty with external objects. And secondly, too. It is to be observed that beautiful objects are themselves, for the most part, organic unities in this sense, that they are wholes of great complexity, such that the contemplation of any part by itself may have no value, and yet that, unless the contemplation of the whole includes the contemplation of that part, it will lose in value. From this it follows that there can be no single criterion of beauty. It will never be true to say, This object owes its beauty solely to the presence of this characteristic, nor yet that, wherever this characteristic is present, the object must be beautiful. All that can be true is that certain objects are beautiful, because they have certain characteristics, in the sense that they would not be beautiful unless they had them and it may be possible to find that certain characteristics are more or less universally present in all beautiful objects and are in this sense more or less important conditions of beauty but it is important to observe that the very qualities which differentiate one beautiful object from all others are if the object be truly beautiful as essential to its beauty as those which it has in common with ever so many others the object would no more have the beauty it has without its specific qualities than without those that are generic, and the generic qualities by themselves would fail as completely to give beauty as those which are specific. End of chapter 6, part 2